Tonight's reading is from the book of Romans, um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, which is on page 1128. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I always think when you hear the Bible read by a sort of science professor, it sounds particularly knowledgeable, knowledgeable, don't you think? Well, listen, it's great to be back here. Regulars will know that um, I've been away for a while, and uh, I've been on sabbatical, study leave, for for three months, and then I had a month's holiday as well. And it's been great. Uh, It's been wonderful. I've been uh, able to to rest a bit. I think I was uh, quite low when I went off for my break, and I really needed a break. And it was good to have time with my family and to rediscover how good it is to be a Christian. It is great to be a Christian, and uh, I've come back full of energy, and I am irrepressible, and you're going to have to suffer that irrepressibility for a a good while to come. Um, I was able to do a bit of traveling. I went to a church planting conference in New York, and I went to do some teaching in Jerusalem, and I went to Northern Ireland, as you do, if you get the opportunity. And um, I was able to visit other churches in London. So I've been to Hillsong and Holy Trinity Brompton and St. Paul's and other places just to pick up ideas and have a look at what's going on. Done some reading on the emerging churches, and uh, it's been very interesting. And uh, been reading J.C. Ryle. If you want to know what to read, anything by J.C. Ryle. Christians don't need anything other than the Bible and the writings of J.C. Ryle. All right? Um, so I've done some reading. I've written the first draft of a book on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it needs to be improved a bit, but it's, it's there with the publisher, so hopefully you'll see that at some point. And it's been great to uh, just get away and to do some study and to do lots of thinking and clarify our thinking for what we're trying to do here in London and throughout the Commission Network, and uh, you'll be hearing more of that, I hope. So I, I owe God a great debt of thanks for enabling me to have this, this time, to, to the elders here for letting me get away, um, and particularly to the staff who've picked up the load of work that I left behind. Um, it'd be nice to think they had to do some work and that because I left them something that they had to pick up. Especially, I want to say thank you to Matt Fuller. Uh, Matt is not here, he's on holiday. Finally collapsed from exhaustion, I think. Um, it is a great joy to have a colleague uh, who is so able, uh, so willing, so uh, dedicated to the gospel that I can just leave the work in his capable hands and entirely trust it to, to him and the team here. And uh, I want to commend Matt to you. He's, he's an outstanding colleague. And I want to say thank you to him publicly, even though he's not here. As you can tell him, when, when uh, he came back, we were talking about him. But uh, he, he, I really owe him a great debt of thanks. But I'm back now, and I uh, can't wait to get going. You're going to have a lot of me now. So uh, we're going to start now looking at the book of Romans, uh, which in terms of the Bible, you think of the Bible as kind of, you know, the, the, uh, the great range of mountains. Romans is, is Mount Everest. I mean, it is the best book in the Bible. It's got the most important stuff in it. Uh, Martin Luther, who was the leader of the European Reformation, said that every Christian should learn it verse by verse, right, word for word, and read it from it every day and contemplate it all the time. So, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a massively important influence upon Christian thinking, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great, great preacher, used to preach just down the road from here, preached verse by verse through it for 10 years. So you never know, we might, I don't think we'll do that, but uh, you can see that the great preachers have been captivated by it, and we're going to study it through this year so that we really get to grips with it uh, in depth. John Calvin, who uh, Phil Cox says is the best thing to come out of France since Champagne, um, said that if you understand Romans, it opens the door to the rest of the Bible, and I think that's right. That if you can understand the book of Romans, the rest of the Bible, as it were, rotates around it. It really does unlock the rest of the Bible to us. So we're in for a treat as we look at the book of Romans throughout the year. But to understand it, we'll need God's help. So let's uh, bow our heads and uh, pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word, your son Jesus, whom we can know through your word, the Bible. We thank you for the presence here of your Holy Spirit to help us understand what your word means. Please would your spirit speak to us through your word that we might know you better. Would you open our minds to understand and our hearts to obey? Father, please set us on fire with your word that we might leave here committed to you, loving you, different from how we came in. Please would you work in our lives through your word now for your honor and glory. Amen. Okay, what, what, what should he talk about then? I mean, what should be his core message? We've just commissioned uh, Andy as uh, an assistant pastor, and he's um, you know, thinking about, what am I going to talk about? What, what will people say of Andy Tanner when he's finished here in 75 years' time? What will be his defining message? I mean, you get that with, with uh, preachers and teachers, don't you? People have a sort of defining message. So, um, when, you know, Winston Churchill, you know, one, one of my favorites. And what was his defining message? You know, never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Something like that, you know. Or was it uh, JFK, wasn't it? You know, ask, uh, that advert puts me off. But, you know, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah? Or um, Martin Luther King, what, what, what would be his message? I have a dream. Or uh, Nelson Mandela, let freedom reign. Great words of the great leader. Well, what will be Andy Towner's? What, what are the words? What's his core message? As we put Andy alongside Winston Churchill, JFK, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and Andy Tanner will just slip off the tongue. What's going to be Andy's core message? What's he all about? What's he trying to teach and preach in his ministry? Actually, it's a good question to ask of us as a church. What are we, what are we really all about? You know, what, what, what are people going to hear if they come to our church? What will you hear a lot of? What's our core message? Well, it needs to be the same core message as the Apostle Paul's. And in summary, basically, it's Jesus Christ our Lord. What Andy needs to be all about, Andy, what you need to be all about, what we need to be about as a church, is all about Jesus. And we're going to learn about that now from Romans uh, chapter 1. Now, by way of introduction, you need to know that um, the Apostle wrote Romans uh, for three reasons, really. Firstly, to clarify the gospel. Uh, he'd never been to Rome. He hadn't planted the church there. It doesn't look like it was planted by an apostle. Uh, we don't really know how the church began there. Uh, it probably began amongst the, uh, the Jewish Christians, perhaps, who'd been at the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and had gone back and started a church there. Um, so he doesn't know the church, and so he wants to introduce himself to them by explaining his message, his gospel. Uh, there was a lot of criticism surrounding Paul, lots of confusion, lots of rumors surrounding what he taught and so on, and he wants to clarify that teaching so that they will recognize his authority as an apostle. 
He intends to visit them, and he wants them to be ready to support him when he comes. So the first thing is to introduce the gospel. He wants to strengthen them to make sure that they're Christians. Uh, he wants to make sure that when he's gone, moved on from them, that they'll be able to carry on gospel ministry in Italy and in Europe and so on. So he firstly writes to introduce his gospel, to clarify his gospel. Now that's really helpful for us today, isn't it? I mean, we need to know what the core gospel message of Christianity is. You know, I mean, if you're not a Christian here this evening and you're trying to get a handle on it, you know, what's it really all about? We need to know that. Those that have been here a long time, we need to know what the gospel is so that we can be saved through it. See, there are lots of people who sit in churches who assume they're Christians who don't really know what this core message is, and they're not Christians at all. So we need to know what is the core saving message of the Scriptures. And that's what we're going to learn from Paul tonight. He also wrote not only to clarify his gospel, but also to resolve some tensions in the church in Rome. He obviously knew a number of people who worked there. There's a great list at the end of the letter uh, of the people that he knows in Rome. And he writes to resolve some of the tensions, particularly between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish or Gentile Christians living in Rome. Uh, There were historical reasons for that. It seems that um, that although the the churches were originally in Rome, Jewish uh, churches, that uh, in AD 49, you may know that Emperor Claudius threw all the Jews out of Rome, which would have meant that all the Jewish Christians would have had to leave Rome. Now, this would have meant that... um, that the churches would have been substantially changed by that great edict. You know, what were started off being Jewish churches now were very much more Gentile. And when Nero took over in AD 54 and the Christians trickled home to their church back in Rome, the churches would have been quite different, much more Gentile now. And many of the Jewish customs in which they'd started would have drifted, uh, would have, uh, drifted away. And so a lot of the burden of Romans is trying to explain to, um, well, explain to, to the Gentile Christians how to treat Jewish Christians. It's very much aimed at the Gentiles and telling them not to be so arrogant and to respect the customs of the Jewish background and to respect the fact that as non-Jewish Christians, we've been grafted into the plant that is Israel. In other words, we've been introduced into the privileges of Israel. And so he wants to resolve these tensions and to bring about unity in the gospel. Now that's very important for us as well. We so much want to be a church that opens its arms to people of many cultures and backgrounds. London is multicultural, and therefore we should be multicultural. And we want to be opening our arms to people from, from all over the world. Our strapline commission is to grow disciples for Christ in London for the world. We want to serve the peoples who are in London for the sake of the nations. And let's face it, the nations are coming here in great numbers. One of the things we're going to be studying about, uh, looking at as a staff in our away days this coming week, and then uh, uh, following the the next week, the elders away day, we're looking at our five-year plan leading up to the Olympics in 2012. In 2012, the world's going to come to London, isn't it? I mean, it's already here, but anyone who's not here is going to be here in 2012. And it seems to me that that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, isn't it, to have the Olympics. This is an Olympic city. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I don't want to just watch the telly. You know, I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and say, yeah, it was great when, you know, I watched a lot of telly when the nations came to London. Wouldn't it be great if, if we as Christians had got ourselves organized so that when the nations came here, we gave them Jesus? If we gave them the gospel, insofar as we can, if we were organized... That whoever wanted to, whoever was willing to listen, we told them about Christ in their own language. We were able to give them things in their own language, to give them a key, to give them an introduction 
to Jesus Christ. So that when they go home, they don't go home just with medals and lots of photographs and uh, little um, sort of you know, red pillar boxes and, and uh, big bends and all the rest of it, but they went home with the gospel. Now, that means, you see, we need to understand how the gospel is for all nations and for all cultures. We need it for our internal unity, don't we? So that we don't fall out with each other and so that we're welcoming people of, of all backgrounds. So it's very important for us to listen to how he resolves these cultural tensions. But thirdly, he wrote in order to recruit support for gospel mission. Uh, he, he, he's quite clear at the end of Romans, if you read to the end, that uh, he was on his third missionary journey. We know from Acts 19 and 20 that he spent three months in Corinth in Greece before then traveling round, to, uh, round past what is now Turkey, past Ephesus, to get to Jerusalem with a gift of money from the Gentile Christians for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And then he intends to come to Rome and to seek their support for a new mission into Europe. He reckons in, in 1516 that he's pretty much finished preaching the gospel in the big urban centers of, East, of the Eastern Empire, and so now he wants to tackle Europe. Didn't think small, did he, the Apostle Paul? So he says, I'm coming to Rome, and I want you to support world mission. I want you to support a mission to Spain and to Europe. Now, to do that, the Roman Christians needed to understand why the world needs the gospel. And they needed to understand what Paul's gospel was and, and, and why it was so urgent. You know, they're bound to say, oh, why can't we just all calm down, stop planting churches? Let's just have a bit of time just to, to sort of settle down and enjoy ourselves as Christians. Why do you keep disturbing us and say, let's plant the next church to the Apostle Paul? The Apostle says, I need to explain to you in this letter why we need to keep planting churches throughout the world and not just where, the, where they lived already. So he's wanting to recruit support for his mission to Spain. Now, in chapter 1, the bit that was read to us, that basically verses 1 to 7 are his greetings. They're part of the introduction, which is verses 1 to 17. Uh, you get the greetings in verses 1 to 7, and, and, and then thanksgiving from 8 to 15. And then 16 to 17 is the sort of theme of the letter. So if you read verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, that theme sentence in verse 16 gives you a bit of a clue what the whole letter's about. The letter has magnificent themes in it, but it begins in the introduction and it ends at the end with the gospel of God. The book of Romans is really an exploration, an expansion, an explanation of the gospel of God. He says that in verse 1, doesn't he? Look at verse 1 as he introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for... The gospel of God. In chapter 15, come with me to the back of Romans and you'll see in chapter 15 how he describes what he's written. It's actually, actually it's, uh, it's difficult to find. It's at the bottom of page 1141. Page 1141. 1515. He says, I've written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. See what he's saying? He said, I've written to you to remind you of things because it's my job to teach you the gospel of God, to please God in heaven. You see, the whole letter is about it. In fact, the final paragraph is about the gospel of God too. 
In fact, the verses we've read 1 to 7 are matched by the final paragraph of Romans. So it's all about the gospel of God. We're going to look at a moment at what that is. But just, just so you understand, the word gospel, it doesn't mean so much good, good news. It means momentous announcement. It was used in the first century of a great victory in battle uh, or the death of an emperor or something like that. It's God's great announcement to his world. So the gospel is this massive announcement. Who's it by? By God. Now, if it's God's announcement to the world, firstly, that means it must be true and reliable because God doesn't tell lies. Secondly, it means it must be important. We've got to listen to it. This is God's great announcement to his world. And thirdly, it's, it's, it's about God. It's interesting that God is the, is the one word that's repeated most often in the book of Romans. So if the book of Colossians is about Christ, that's the key word, Christ gets repeated over and over. Ephesians, the word church is the key word. In Romans, the one key word is God. This book is all about God. One of the things I did on my, on my sabbatical was I did a study course, a doctrine course at Oak Hill Bible College uh, on the doctrine of God, and it blew my mind. You know, uh, if you hadn't worked out, God is absolutely amazing. And uh, Romans is going to show us how amazing God is. I'm very excited about this year. because I've got so much to teach you about God from Romans. Wait till you get to revive. It's, God is amazing. I mean, for example... One of the things I was learning, it's very important in Romans, is that because God is perfect, he doesn't kind of have to improve and change all the time. He's perfect. He's all his wonderful things all at the same time. Uh, The phrase is maximally alive. So he's all his wonderful features all at the same time. So he doesn't have to kind of improve over time, which means that the God of the Old Testament didn't improve to become the God of the New Testament. And the Romans needed to know that. Same God in the Old Testament, same God in the New Testament, because God is perfect and maximally alive all the time. He's magnificent. So you see, all the wonderful things that are true of him were true of him in the Old Testament and are true of him in the New Testament. So you see, Paul writes about God, and he writes about the gospel of God, God's announcement to his world. To summarize the whole book of Romans, I'd say it like this. God's gospel reveals God's righteousness. God's gospel reveals God's righteousness. The whole book's about it, and uh, we're going to learn more about it as we go on. But uh, we need to first think about, from this passage, what is this gospel? Three simple things. I put them there on the sheet for you. Firstly, God's gospel is from the Old Testament. Do you see that in verse 2? Let's look at verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So God's gospel comes from the Old Testament. The saving gospel that Paul preached has its origins in the Old Testament. Paul didn't invent it. It's not something new and and newfangled. It's the ancient promise of God. The Old Testament promise to Abraham of a place in the kingdom of God is fulfilled in Christ. There is no discontinuity. There is no discontinuity. There's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you open your Bible, I mean, you've probably done this before, but if you open your Bible, you turn to the beginning of Matthew. All right. So if you open your, your, your Bible there and you find there's probably a kind of page in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, with nothing on it. Because people keep thinking, don't they, that, you know, there's a sort of a gap between the Old and the New Testament. Well, that shouldn't be there. So if, you know, if you want to, what you do is just tear it out, okay? Because that page shouldn't be there in the Bible. It's completely continuous between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why is Mark looking nervous? 
There should be no page dividing the two there, so you go and throw it away. Okay? There is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, it was vital for the Roman Christians to understand this. You see, for the Jews to understand that their Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament is a promise looking forward to Jesus. They need to understand Jesus, for he is the answer to their promise. Mind you, the the Gentiles needed to understand that. They needed to know that the background to Jesus is in the Old Testament. They need to respect their Jewish heritage and read the Old Testament. And actually, this has big implications for us as well. We need to recognize that the great promise to Abraham of the kingdom of God is fulfilled in Christ the King. We don't need New Testament and Old Testament theology. We want biblical theology. Now, this has implications. It means that the God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. Um, I run a a little Bible study in the House of Lords for for various people working there. And uh, one of the MPs who comes along there said to me once, um, she's not been a Christian very long, and I said, we're going to study some Old Testament and look at the book of Joshua. She said, oh, I don't like the Old Testament. I said, why? She said, oh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is all judging, but the God of the New Testament is love. I love the New Testament. I don't like, don't like the God of the Old Testament. And, and I said, look, you'll be surprised. And we studied the book of Joshua, and she was astonished to find that it's all about the same God as the God of the New Testament. You see, God is both judging and loving, and Jesus explains how. Right? It's the same God, Old and New Testaments. Of course, this is important also. It means that the theology of the New Testament is continuous with the theology of the Old Testament. It was interesting, as I said, I was doing some reading on the the emerging churches, and in particular the work of something called Numa. I don't know if you've ever come across Numa Ministries, and Rob Bell, I've read his book, uh, Velvet Elvis. It's very interesting there. He he, he confesses that he finds some of the things he he reads in Joshua so shocking that he can't work out how that could possibly be true of God. And so he has this view of the Bible, which I think is really quite worrying. He says... He says, well, God's written what, what happened then, and what we're supposed to do is we kind of interact with that and work out what God is saying to us now. Now, that's quite wrong. We're not trying to work out what God is saying to us now through our own story now. He, he didn't seem to understand that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. See, biblical theology saves us from saying, oh, I don't, I don't understand that bit of the Old Testament. Let's forget it and make it up. We need to work out how the Old and the New Testament link together. That's why we do um, Bible overview courses here, to link the whole Bible together in Prepared to Serve. If you want a good introduction to, to, to this whole uh, area, get Vaughan Roberts' brilliant book called God's Big Picture to show you how the Bible fits together, how the Old is fulfilled in the New. It also means the people of the New Testament are continuous with the people of the Old Testament. We who are Gentiles are not superior to the people, uh, to the Jewish people. We've been grafted into their privileges. When I was in Jerusalem, of course, it's very difficult for the Palestinian Christians there who often feel persecuted by modern Israelites, modern Israel. And, um, but they need to recognize that they mustn't be um, you know, superior or arrogant or, or neglectful. They need to recognize that we as Gentiles have been grafted into the privileges of Israel. So we're not just New Testament Christians here at TBT. We're Bible Christians, committed to biblical theology. We're not proclaiming a contemporary message, our our own message, with ancient methods. We're proclaiming the ancient gospel with contemporary methods. So, Andy, don't tell us anything new. 
Nothing new, please. All right? Lots of new ways of doing it, but the same old message, the gospel of the Bible. Firstly, then, God's gospel is from the Old Testament. Uh, Secondly, God's gospel is about his son, verses 3 to 4. It's very simple here. Look at verse 3. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? God's gospel's all about his son, Jesus. That's quite surprising, isn't it? It's actually the gospel is not about the Father. The gospel is not about the Holy Spirit. The gospel is certainly not about me or us and our church. We're very good, aren't we, at sort of telling people all about us. But actually, that's not the saving gospel. The saving message is all about Jesus. And Paul says it's regarding his son. God's announcement to the world concerns Jesus, his son. Two simple things about him, these two phrases here. As to his human nature, a descendant of David, and then declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, what's that talking about? It's not actually talking about um, uh, his human nature and his divine nature. Uh, Jesus is human and divine, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He he uses this twin phraseology later in 2 Timothy 2. Uh, Remember Jesus Christ, uh, risen from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. So what do these two things mean? Descended from David and risen from the dead. Well, to cut cut down to the the simple thing, they're both phrases showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah or king. That He's the savior king. But there are two stages in his ministry. The one here on earth in his human nature, and the one risen from the dead, enthroned in glory. So as the descendant of David, he means his ministry here on earth when he suffered and died for our sins. The one uh, risen from the dead is enthroned in glory on high, as was always promised. So it's the two stages, it's the suffering and the glory of the Messiah. It's a big theme in Romans, you get it later on in Romans, that uh, like our Saviour, our suffering comes before our glory. Right? You can't have the glory without going through the suffering first, but the suffering is, is not all there is. The glory is to come. That's how it was for Jesus, and in following him, it'll be the same for us. It's the suffering and the glory of Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about his suffering and his glory. And we need to tell both. Andy, tell us about both. It's very interesting when you look at the songs that people sing. You know, some people have songs and messages all about the death of Jesus. And then in other traditions, they have lots and lots of songs about the enthronement of Jesus, and we need both. We need to hear both about his death on the cross and his enthronement on the throne of glory. And then Paul summarizes it in summary, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this little phrase, this little summary, people who have done uh, Prepare to Serve will know this well. It's used everywhere in the New Testament. It's Paul's sort of short, short summary of the gospel. So if you can't remember anything I've said tonight, just remember Jesus Christ our Lord. It's easy, isn't it? It's not just a kind of accidental phrase. It means a lot. Do you remember what did Peter say at the end of his great sermon in Acts 2? Let all Israel be assured of this, that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Jesus Christ our Lord comes everywhere. And by it, Paul appears to mean, look, Jesus, that's the human name. That's his kind of earthly name, like Jeffrey or John or something, right? Jesus. 
the guy who lived in, in Palestine, the crucified Nazarene man, him, Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, that's the suffering saviour king, our Lord, that is the risen ruler and judge of us all. All right? Jesus, the crucified Nazarene, is the Christ, the promised suffering king, our Lord, our ruler, risen ruler and returning judge. That summarizes the gospel. And that needs to be our gospel. Andy, that needs to be your gospel, mate. Tell us all about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, notice just a couple of things about that. Notice that it's about a person. This is a relationship and not a religion. Christianity is not a religion. We're not about, we're interested, interested in religion here. We're interested in a relationship with Jesus from the heart. We want to know him personally. Andy, help us know Jesus better personally. And that person is Jesus. It's not us. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, says the apostle. So let's hear all about Jesus. Help us to understand and love and know him better. And notice that it's Jesus, our Lord. He's not just a friend. You know, he's not just a, a counselor and a companion. He's also our Lord and King. So tell us all about Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's gospel is about his son. Thirdly and lastly, God's gospel is for all nations. You, re- you find that in verses 5 to 7. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? If Christ is enthroned on high, king of kings over all the universe, if he rules the universe, then this gospel is for all nations. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for uh, the West. It's not just for people who feel like, 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 like that, who are sort of religious disposition. It's for people of all nations because he's enthroned as Lord over all. I remember the uh, Christians saying how damaging it was when Colonel Gaddafi uh, declared that uh, Islam was the religion of Africa. And uh, Nigerian Christians suffered terribly because of that statement and the Islamic fervor that it uh, stirred up. But it's not true. So next time you see Colonel Gaddafi, perhaps you could tell him that that is a mistake. Islam is not the religion of Africa. Christ is the Lord of all nations. And all nations must submit to him. For he is enthroned on high over all nations. And there is no savior but him. Notice that the response that this message, uh, this announcement demands is the obedience of faith. In other words, it's a faith that is obedient to his lordship. If he's enthroned as lord, then obviously to trust in him means to obey him as lord. But notice that this is not a sort of begrudging duty. This is not a reluctant submission. Paul uses three beautiful little phrases that were used of Israel to describe his readers. Firstly, a phrase of security. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see that, verse uh, 6? And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus, which means he cares about you passionately. He's not about to let terrible things happen without his permission. Because he loves you, you belong to him. It's good, isn't it? We, you know, we don't belong to our genetic makeup. The scientists are trying to tell us that something, you know, we're trapped by our genes. No, we're not. We belong to Christ. Uh, we don't belong to our past history. You know, the past, many of us feel just locked in the mistakes and the guilt of the past. But no, we don't belong to our past history. We belong to Christ, and he has plans to do much more with us than his past. We don't belong to our employers and the situation in which we're in. They think they own us, but they don't. 
We belong to Jesus Christ. And he has great plans for our future. The second phrase is one of significance. We're loved by God. Do you see that there in verse 7? To all in Rome who are loved by God. We're loved by God. So he protects us. Do you understand that if you're a Christian? God loves you. He wants the best for you. And nothing in all the world can possibly separate you from the love of Christ. You know how he, he takes off in exploring this theme in Romans 8. You know, neither, neither life nor death nor demons nor angels. Nor whatever happens, nothing, hardships, trouble, anything that happens this coming week, nothing can ever separate you. Not your sins or anybody else's. Nothing can stop God loving you. He loves us. And thirdly, there's a, there's a phrase of purpose. We're called to be saints, verse 7. Called to be holy, that means. And so he trains us. It's a, it's a great purpose in life. God's purpose for our lives is not that we're massively successful, that we're massively important, or massively rich, but that we're massively holy. That is his purpose for our life. So the gospel, you see, is all about Christ and the response that he requires. It's all about Christ. The response is the obedience of faith. As I finish, let's just look at those two phrases as we try and nail these applications for our lives. The core of the message is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This stresses his universal rule. He's Lord of all the nations. And Paul will explore this thing throughout Romans. Let me tell you that Paul will say it means that we are accountable to the Lord. You and I will have to explain ourselves to the living Lord one day. And we'll have to, we are accountable to him. See, if he's the Lord, he's our judge. Chapters 2 and 3 make this quite plain. And be under no illusions, you and I will stand before the living Lord Jesus and we'll have to explain to him what we did with the life that he gave us. We're ultimately accountable to him, not anybody else, but to him. And so we need to live our lives with him in mind, for he will determine where we spend eternity. But not only is he our judge because he's our Lord, second, he can be our saviour because he's the Lord. Because he's enthroned on high, he is sovereign over all powers. And Paul will go on in chapters 5 to 8 to explain that uh, uh, because he's the Lord, he gives us the hope of glory. And nothing can stop us getting there, whether it's the sin in our lives or the law that condemns us or the death that we die. We're on our way to glory because he's the Lord. See, if he's the Lord, he's not only our judge, he can be our saviour and keep us going. He'll never let us go. And of course, if he's our Lord, it means we must be like him. Chapters 12 to 15. Like him, we need to be patient with one another and committed to the nations. In the same way, we must be like him because he's our Lord. So we live for him and learn to be like him. See, so if he's our Lord, he's our judge, he's our saviour, and he's our example. So, Andy... Teach us Jesus Christ our Lord. But also, will you hold us to the obedience of faith? Call us to a faith that is obedient. As we finish with this, let me make this clear. Faith means to trust and rely upon him for our salvation. But you see, faith in him as Lord means we have to be obedient to him. You see, a, a faith that has no obedience to it is just intellectualism. And if, if our Christianity is just kind of intellectual sort of philosophizing and theorizing about Jesus, but there's no evident obedience in our life, we're not a Christian. That is just kind of you know, middle-class games playing, isn't it? It's just intellectualism. Being a Christian is more than just having ideas and opinions about Jesus. 
It must be a faith that is expressed in practical obedience. Mind you, an obedience that has no trust in Jesus for salvation is just moralism. You know, to try and keep the rules, but without any personal trust in Jesus, is just empty religion. And some of us may have come from a religious background and and think that's what it's about. No, it's about trusting in Jesus personally for our salvation, expressed in the obedience of our lives. Now tell me this. Where is the obedience that expresses your faith? If you claim to be a Christian here this evening, can you point to the obedience in your lifestyle? Where is the obedience of your faith? When we think about what we say with our lips about others in the church, the slander, the gossip, the criticism, where is the obedience that comes from faith? When we think what we do with our money, what we spend our money on, where is the obedience that comes from faith? Someone rightly said, you know, uh, our bank statement is the best indicator of our spiritual condition. How does our bank statement indicate our faith in Jesus? What we do with our hands and our bodies, where is the obedience that comes from faith? Where is the practical help that expresses what you claim to believe in Jesus? The hospitality to a, to a visiting student, the service that expresses what you claim to believe about Jesus, the obedience that comes from faith. Andy. Teach us the obedience that comes from faith. Teach us how to live for our Saviour who is Lord. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, how we thank you for your great gospel announcement to us all. How we praise you for this gospel that originates in the Old Testament that is centered and focused upon Jesus Christ, our Lord, that calls for obedience of faith. Lord God, you know the condition of our hearts. You know the reality of our lives. You know what really goes on in our heads. Lord God, please would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to take these words and to live by them. Help us to study your word, Old and New Testament, that we might understand this gospel. Help us to submit our lives to Jesus as Christ our Lord, that he might indeed be the ruler of our lives. Help us to express it in an obedience that comes from faith, not just with fine songs and and grand-sounding words, but with lives that are distinctive and different. Lord, help Andy and all of us to proclaim this gospel for all nations. For we ask it for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.